Well, I think doing nothing is probably ill-advised because we know cost of financing has changed. Doing nothing is probably not appropriate. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast, real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So every time I walk around and I'm talking to, to a variety of investors in this environment, we find ourselves April 11th, 2023, uh, where the banks are doing what the banks are doing, which isn't so great. And uh, interest rates are continuing to rise. And the Fed doesn't seem to be that peaceful or dovish about what's going to happen in the future. And in the middle of this environment, combined with a, a lacking demand for office properties and others, the real question, I think, especially in the United States, is what is this property worth? There's nothing trading, so it's almost impossible for us to understand what do we have in our portfolios? How do we report appropriately to our investors what it is? How do we make our own strategic decisions uh, based on value when we don't know what the value is? So we are really lucky today to be able to chat with someone who's, that's all he thinks about right now, uh, Matt Pomeroy. Uh, is the head of asset valuation at Chatham Financial and really the appropriate person for us to kind of walk through this a little bit and think about how can we do a better job of understanding value? Why are we not getting there? And where do we go from here? So thank you, Matt, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Absolutely, Gunnar. I'm excited to be here with you. So why don't you start by characterizing What's the situation we're in right now? What What is happening in April of 2023 where the values that we are attributing to assets may not be what they should be? Yeah, I think we can set the scene by referring to 2022 and what happened in the public markets and what happened in the private markets for real estate. So it's not apples to apples, to be clear. Um, you know, public REITs trade on an exchange and investors in those products can make expectations about future returns. It also pulls in behavioral biases um, that are not a part of the valuation process for private real estate, or at least not directly. So, uh, I, although it's not a direct apples to apples comparison, I do think it's a useful framework for understanding how values have moved and potential lags in the private markets. So, uh, and this has been in the news, this disconnect um, widely. And, and like you say, it's a topic of, of conversation for most folks in the space right now. So in 2022, listed REIT prices were down about 22% on an unlevered basis, more than that on a levered basis. And there are real-time or more real-time indices, Green Streets, Commercial Property Price Index, or CPPI is something that investors look at to sort of track value movement in real estate. That was down about 17% in 2022. And in contrast, you have the Nacreef Property Index, or NPI, 
and the NFI Odyssey Index, which is specific to open-end fund vehicles, both reflecting positive returns in 2022. So NARID index down 22% unlevered, Green Street CPPI down 17% for the year. And despite some negative returns showing up in fourth quarter, NPI and Odyssey positive for the year in 2022. So there's different opinions about how much lag there is in the private markets versus the public markets. But that highlights that clearly there is some lag or some differences in approach that um, are showing up in the data. So you hear anywhere from six to 18 months lag, I think, depending on which cycle you look at in the past, the average might be around 12 months lag or so uh, in terms of declines when those show up in increases in value when those show up in the those private indexes versus some of those uh, public measures. And, and part of the problem that you pointed out, it, it's not apples to apples per se, although certainly it's an indicator in terms of what direction they're going. Although, you know, I'd love to believe that the private real estate industry just get, you know, we're better at it. So obviously we're, we're going to make money when, when the public markets are not. That's not true. Obviously, That's right. But we're all in the right. same market. But but there, right. there is this kind of question, uh, even if you even if you you are able to accept, OK, there's this lag in time is that how do we calibrate then what that difference is if the public markets are, are responding or they may be a knee-jerk response to a certain extent because that's what public markets do. Perhaps they're overcompensating uh, and, and driving the values down lower than they should be. Uh, is there any sense of, are, are there any signs or guideposts that helped you or would help an investor understand where is that number likely to be if it's, you know, versus what the public markets are doing? Yeah, and I think, you know, you hear people say that neither is right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the public market movement may not reflect actual market and the private real estate marks may not also reflect actual market. So how could you solve to be closer to actual market? I think it's helpful to talk through how private real estate is valued to, to, to think through some potential solutions. And so I'll do that. I think most folks know this probably, but um, private real estate assets are typically appraised once per quarter or once per year, depending on what type of vehicle those assets are in. If it's open-end vehicles where investors are trading on those values, the appraisal cadence is more frequent and you'd get quarterly marks. So that appraisal process for institutional real estate is primarily driven by discounted cash flows. So that is um, models that are constructed that include all of the facts uh, related to the rent roll and operating expenses projected out 10 years with some assumptions about releasing space as it comes available 
and then an assumption about a reversion at the end of the holding period. And those net cash flows and net proceeds from reversion are discounted back to a present value. And that is the value of the asset. Appraisers use transaction data to support a lot of the assumptions in those cash flows. So that would include on the leasing side, lease comps, whether in the subject building itself or in nearby comparable buildings, and also sale transaction data points to help substantiate assumptions about both what is an appropriate value now. So that could be price per unit on apartments or price per square foot on other properties, as well as assess what investor expectations are for returns. So that can look like an implied cap rate to the extent appraisers can obtain the information. It can also include what was underwritten as a terminal cap rate by investors in deals now, as well as what was the unlevered or levered IRR, um, which is analogous in the appraisal process to what's being applied as a discount rate. So all that to say, the way that appraisals are developed are heavily reliant on transactions to both make assumptions and to support and triangulate the resulting value. So structure cannot hold if you (laughs) do not have transactions. And even the transactions that are taking place today are impaired transactions. They are, they are distressed. Therefore the values there are not necessarily reflecting reality either. So what happens because of that? Yeah. So, so I think there's two things with this reliance on transactions uh, and sole reliance on transactions that are problematic. The first is, you have a natural lag as a result of the transaction cycle. So deal gets negotiated. That may not hit appraisers' radars for two, three, maybe even more months uh, post-negotiation. So in a very fast-moving market, up or down, you have a natural lag that's a result of reliance on deals closing versus the time frame when, when they were negotiated. So we saw this in 2021 on the way up with investment managers feeling like appraisers were lagging the deals they were pricing real time in the market. And so th- there's the natural lag that's created, but then you have this issue when there are no transactions, what can be done and what is sometimes done and is probably part of the reason for the lag is if you have no transactions, then you may wait to do anything significant in terms of adjustment of assumptions until you have that visibility through transactions. And so you're kind of waiting for those to show up and in that time, not doing much in terms of adjusting valuation metrics. And if that's one quarter, then you can right size pretty quickly when transactions show up. If it's prolonged, as it appears to be right now, where you had interest rates increasing in the middle of last year and 
a significant slowdown in transaction volume as a result through the back half of last year and into this year too. Um, you need to be able to, you know, I think it's important for valuers to find other ways to quantify potential value change before transactions show up. Because I think without the, without that, you, you end up almost in this negative feedback loop that we're in now, which is, um, you don't have a lot of transactions in part because marks are high relative to what could be achieved if something was brought to market. But because of that, you then don't have transactions. And because you don't have transactions, you don't have the data to support an adjustment to the marks that might be too high right now. So I think to break that negative feedback loop and to give investors uh, more realistic valuations that if it's an open-end vehicle that ultimately they're trading on, um, I think we have to move outside of a sole reliance on transaction data to support adjustments. So a um, couple things to consider. One is, this. You, you, a lot of your listeners may already know this too, but values are developed on an unlevered basis. Right. And so, uh, well, I, I should say, after those values are developed, mark to markets on debt and the value of any derivatives are layered in separately in calculating NAV. And I, I don't think that's the wrong process, but a challenge that that process creates is valuers of assets are disconnected or separated from financing considerations. Everything's being done on an unlevered basis. You don't necessarily need to track, or you may not be tracking what's happening with interest rates and how that might impact values and pricing. So bringing some of those considerations in to the process of valuing assets not necessarily valuing them on a levered basis, but saying, okay, interest rates have increased 200 basis points. What might making some assumptions about what market financing might look like now versus what it looked like before, what might be a range of value adjustment that would be appropriate? And it would be approximate and it would require assumptions. But you, you know, you hear the phrase, it's better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. I think this might apply in that case is that this would provide a mechanism to try to be approximately right. Well, I think as long as those assumptions are as transparent as possible, because I think our biggest problem right now is opacity. Just no one really knows what they have underneath there. So we tend to say, well, give me, give me the worst possible news. At the very least, then I'll have some sense of, of how bad it can be. But really, we're talking about ranges of outcomes. I, I, we all have to start behaving like nuclear physicists and thinking in terms of probabilities. But I, I do think there's an aspect of that if you can be transparent with how you're coming across those numbers. And certainly those public numbers help us. They, they certainly give us a mark. They may not be absolutely precise. But I, I hear you loud and clear because the, the, the value 
of the asset and the debt cost are inexorably tethered to each other. They tend to move with each other, perhaps with some lags in there, but the, the value of that asset to an investor is heavily impacted by an increased cost of leverage. Um, and that that's the situation we find ourselves. But to be able that's to right. present that model as a whole, it's not going to be a single number. It's not going to be as straightforward a NAV calculation as it maybe was three or four years ago. So it won't be precise. It won't be as simple. It will be a little bit more complicated. But it seems to me that anyone involved in the deal needs to understand what the range is or the probabilities are. Is that to a certain extent what you're what you're proposing? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, ultimately, appraisers will still likely need to provide their clients, investment managers, a number, a value right. of uh, for, for each asset that they're appraising. But in the absence of transaction data, or when it's sparse, can we use this as a tool to help frame out how pricing may have moved. So so as an example of how it could be applied, if you have a, a property, um, rather than use specific numbers, I'll just say, let, you know, interest rates have moved 200 basis points. Um, right now, if you hold the property value and the unlevered discount rate fixed, meaning interest rates went up 200 basis points and you didn't lower the value, the implied levered IRR probably makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Instead of holding property value and the unlevered discount rate fixed, what if we held the levered IRR fixed? So we say levered return expectations haven't changed, but the cost of debt has changed. So how should values change? change. And you, you'd have to, as I said, make some assumptions about that market financing and LTV. But if you do that, and, and you could do it with ranges, you can assess, okay, if interest rates have gone up 200 basis points, maybe unlevered IRRs or unlevered discount rates should go up 50 basis points and value should come down 10% or something. Right. And so I think that that is a way to apply it that provides some quantification to value change when you don't have transaction data, but you do know how the cost of financing has changed. And it ultimately the levered IRR consideration that gets sort of excluded from the fair value process. <laughs> It is part of buyer's underwriting. I mean, generally, not every buyer is a levered buyer, but a lot of buyers are. And if they're using leverage, they're considering, okay, what would be the return here on an unlevered basis? And what would be the return on a levered basis? And expectation is that would be accretive to apply financing. And so this is bringing that consideration that's already part of buyer's considerations, which is ultimately the perspective that appraisers are being asked to take in the valuation process. It's bringing that into the process. Now, as you look at what people are doing right now, and to a certain extent, maybe what they're not doing, you know, 
to your point, we're waiting. We're waiting for things to clear. Um, what what are you concerned about, or what would you warn investors not to do in this current environment? Where, where, where what's the dangerous move that that they could or could not make at this point? Well, I think doing nothing is um, probably ill advised because we know again cost of financing has changed the outlook on fundamentals for certain property types especially office is decidedly different now than it was a year ago um so i think doing nothing is probably not appropriate um doing you know uh tracking with the public markets which trade on a different basis and and are significantly more volatile um you know that might not be the right answer either. I think, I think probably the right answer is something that's in between those two extremes and is a more measured approach that takes real time information as it's available into consideration. Uh, not overreacting, not jumping ahead of what's available as data, but just using different types of data to try to quantify value change is, 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 is probably appropriate. And then I think the other thing um, that I think is, is something that both investment managers and uh, appraisers who are valuing their assets can do, which would be an additional sort of uh, approach in the absence of transaction data. So there's the leverage considerations. Can those be used to help quantify? But also I think sharing information I think being open to, um, you know, not not your not your secret sauce of how you source deals and underwrite them, but what you're seeing in the market. I think there are different formats and places where information can be shared. I, one avenue is through your valuers. So, um, you know, appraisers and valuers are generally working for a variety of clients. And if they're proactively gathering market information from those clients and, and then anonymizing it, aggregating it, anonymizing it, and sharing it back with those clients is, I know this is what you're seeing. Here's, here's what we're hearing in aggregate and how that might uh, be consistent or not with, with sort of broader data sets. Um, that's very useful in times like this where we might not have a sale price, but we might have bids and we might have asks on assets that were taken to market and did not transact. And then again, it's not as precise as a sale price, but it does help frame a range of reasonableness. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I think there's, there's, failed marketing processes or assets taken to market that didn't transact. Can we share information about those? Can we share information about what we're seeing, you know, to the extent um, investment managers are involved on the debt side, as well as the equity side, what are they seeing in terms of loans they have on collateral? What, you know, I think that there's, there's loans maturing all the time what's happening when, when that's happening, when the loans are maturing, are, are 
borrowers working to extend and do they feel like they have equity to protect or are they walking away from the situation? Like those, those type of anecdotes and information, if those can be aggregated by valuers or shared among investment managers themselves, that's useful for everybody trying to get it right on Mm -hmm. valuations. Well, certainly it's calling for a certain level of humility along with the transparency. We don't know. And I think anyone pretending that they do is is asking perhaps for some trouble. I asked this question in the last cycle. Is there anything that we can learn from this process that we'll take with us as the markets inevitably turn upward again? I think this is a great opportunity to learn how to bring in leverage considerations into the unlevered valuation process Mm -hmm. to help triangulate and quantify reasonable value change with or without transactions. I mean, ultimately if it, we know what interest rates are in, even in a normal market, we might know what interest rates are before that, that really good, comp shows up. And Mm -hmm. so this can help bring the appraisal process more in line with underwriting, I think one, and two, hopefully help close the gap between real-time pricing and valuations, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's accentuated at the moment, (laughs) but but even in a normal market cycle, there is a lag. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think this, this this sort of with this issue being highlighted now, I think working on solutions as an industry to to address it in this sort of acute situation now, but on an ongoing basis going forward, I think is really useful. So hopefully that's what we can take from this. So in other words, you have a dream uh, that we will get to a better place where valuation lag is going to be less of a, a presence. You think it's possible for us to, to diminish that lag a bit, perhaps? I do. I do. I think it is. I mean, real estate as an industry isn't always as tech forward and innovative as other industries, Um and that's okay. I think, but I think this is an opportunity to just layer in um, a, a little bit different approach and and more sharing, more sophistication, and things like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be tech reliant. What we're talking about, it can just be let's try to expand how we're thinking about this, and also when data is not readily available make a concerted effort to share it with each other. So yeah, maybe that is a dream. <laughs> we'll see if, we'll see if it, if it um, takes hold with more folks and, and, and sort of happens more broadly. But I, I do think it's ultimately if the industry is set up to go through this exercise of developing valuations so that investors can understand the value of their portfolios, and in some cases, transact on those values, we sort of all owe it to them to, to try to do this right. Uh, that is well put. Well, 
I, I encourage everyone uh, to continue this conversation with you and with others as we, I hope, you know, raise the bar in the state of the art in terms of valuing the assets and the portfolios that we have that can only help in an institutional marketplace for us to have more clarity here, even if the accuracy is not precise. Uh, perhaps it's a range sometimes, uh, times like these. But I think, I think I'm hopeful as well. I, I'm, I'm encouraged by what you had to say, Matt. We've been speaking with uh, Matt Pomeroy, who's the head of asset valuation at Chatham Financial. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thanks, Gunnar. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. Though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.